0: I'm Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast. Brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, uh, if I if I if I sound garbled or bleary eyed, uh, don't adjust the vertical or the horizontal. It's only because I was stuck at CNN until. The wee hours last night. Um, and I am somewhat sleep deprived. But fortunately, I have someone here who can um, carry the load like a boxer who needs to go 12 rounds. So he holds up his opponent for a few rounds just to keep the thing going. Uh, we have uh, a fi- remnant fan favorite, uh, Daniel Hanan. What is your official, like, you're the, you're the, 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 you have like some sort of lord, something of someplace. Thing going for you? What is it now? Yeah.
1: I love your Republican virtue, Jonah. Yes. Yes. Well, already we're clinching and propping each other up. Uh, <laughs> the name the, 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 the name on my passport now is Lord Hannon of Kingsclear. Kingsclear being this delightful village, which I'm looking at now through my window on the Hampshire Berkshire borders. It's a gorgeous August day here.
0: So if you yelled, Oh, piss boy, would just someone come running? Um, I mean, it's like, it, it, do you have serfs? Somebody would come running. I mean, what they would then do
1: when they found me? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different question. Um, uh, just try, yeah, Just try that. Go into a crowded pub and shout it at someone. Uh,
0: but so for listeners who don't know, uh, Daniel is um, a prolific author um, who I've learned a lot from. He is, was also a member of the European Parliament for the UK from, what, 99 to like 2020 or something like that? Can you imagine? 20 years. Um, of debating the curvature of a cucumber, and then um, uh, what else? And you are now the president of some free the free trade institute. Are you, what is? Tell, tell me more. I don't have your bio in front of me, so I'm doing this from memory. I am trying to. Yes, I,
1: I run something called the Institute for Free Trade, and I serve on the board of trade in the UK. And I I do my best to shoehorn some free trade principles into a pretty reluctant bureaucracy that wants to talk about everything except trade. What they really want to talk about is uh, you know, food miles and net zero and women's rights and indigenous rights and employment rights and everything except the free exchange of goods and services. It's it's a problem intrinsic in bureaucracy. So I'm, I'm doing my best in, a, in an unfriendly age to try and uh, make the case for Adam Smith and David Ricardo and, and free trade.
0: All right. So uh, one of the reasons why I was up late is these indictments came down from the uh, Fulton County grand jury. And I want to get to that in two seconds and get your sort of broader cosmic take on American politics from abroad and how you guys see all this stuff. But you just put something in my head when you accused me of of manfully defending Republican virtue. Um, There is a growing debate in my little ghetto of the eggheadosphere about what Republicanism actually means because there is a general consensus Again, among the sort of the intellectuals that I respect and admire that what our democracy is lacking is more republicanism, and part of the problem etymolo- etymologically or historically is that that republicanism was often used as just or 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 republican virtue was basically used as a stand-in for liberal virtue or democratic virtue or you know uh, an alternative to Arbitrary power and monarchy and that kind of thing, and so I'm just kind of curious. Since you know, one of my favorite books is um, your book on how the English created freedom. When you talk about republicanism, how do you define it, and what do you think it is?
1: Yeah, it's a really important question. And by the way, we have the same problem here because uh, my my party is the Conservative Party, and big C and small C conservatism are not always the same thing in the same way that as we're seeing big time right now the Republican Party is not always a repository of Republican virtue. What I understand by Republican virtue, and I think I I would kind of trace the lineage back to Cato's letters and and earlier, is it's actually not really even primarily about having an elected head of state. I mean, that's part of it. But there's a much, much bigger uh, sense of self-reliance, of manliness, of uh, being suspicious of autocrats and monarchs, of being opposed to any kind of servility, of not wanting to crawl to people to get sinecures or, or office. And in that sense, my Republican instincts would tell me that something has gone very badly wrong with the Republic right now, because if opinion polls are to be believed, your countrymen are gearing up to support precisely the kind of two-bit Caesarist that the founders designed the whole system to stop. and the thing that I find the most contrary to republicanism, as I understand republicanism, republican virtue, is the way in which otherwise honourable people will take Trump on his own terms. In other words, will will change their views whenever he changes his, uh, will jump through hoops because he has asked it, you know, will support him because he's him, not because he happens to be advancing their agenda. I totally get the people who say, in in an imperfect field, this is the the least bad alternative. We all have to do that in politics. What I am utterly mystified by, and like you, years of studying it have still not really brought me closer to a proper explanation. What I'm utterly mystified by is the people who build him up as this great moral exemplar when he behaves in a way that they would not tolerate in their own children. The, The lies, the narcissism, the neediness, the cruelties, and that, that I just, I, I, I'm no closer to an answer. Uh, maybe you can enlighten me.
0: No, I'm not sure I can. I mean, I have my own theories. I'm sure there are theories that you've heard or share. Um, I mean, I agree with you descriptively. It's obviously so. It's like, if you had someone in your office or in your kid's school or in your family who behaved the way Trump does, most of these people who say they love Trump wouldn't tolerate it for a second. And, you know, the thing I always fall back on and I'm always nervous about talking about people like Lord Acton to people like you, but um, if you actually go back and you look at the where the phrase absolute power corrupts absolutely comes from, it doesn't mean what everybody ascribes to Acton. Even though I think Acton believed the thing about how absolute power can corrupt leaders and that's a problem, he was actually referring to in that letter how absolutely powerful corrupt other people. And specifically, this historian Lord Crichton, who was a historian of the popes, he was asking Acton, you know, shouldn't we cut some cut some of the bad popes some slack, given you know that you know they had the times they were dealing with? And Acton said, no, like like that's and that's a form of intellectual corruption is bending your yardstick just because somebody's in power. You know, like Stalin gets a a pass for killing a million people because he got to break some eggs to make an omelet that you would but you would condemn someone for committing one murder. And I think that that's the thing I've been so fascinated on is the way in which the moral and, and, and characterological yardsticks that people have that had going into the beginning of the Trump era had to be bent and warped to fit the man rather than requiring the man to fit the standards that they, they used to have. And other than sort of evolutionary psychology, which is that human beings have somewhere in their lizard brain, a thing that they can't tolerate the notion that their leader is a bad person. So they change their definition of what is a good person to fit the guy. I mean, other than that, I just, I have no idea.
1: So look, in every polity you've had these hungry, needy, uh, ambitious individuals, right? There's nothing new about it. In fact, it's, it's been the normal form of, of government. And uh, the extraordinary thing to me has been exactly as you say, to watch the way in which, you know, the foreign policy hawks had no problem with Trump siding with Putin against the US intelligence agencies, the way the evangelicals and the kind of moral conservatives forgave all the lies and the fornications and the the, the character flaws, uh, the way that the Tea Party suddenly disappeared, had no problem with a trillion dollar deficit. Uh, the way all the, the kind of The the, the character conservatives, right, the the Straussian conservatives who said this is about restraint and civic virtue and courtesy, suddenly uh, were making excuses. And so, in a way, it's no surprise at all that we've ended up where we have now, which is that the law and order people are now attacking the process of law enforcement, because all of as you say. Now, I mean, it's not to say that 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 they haven't got a point about some of this. Political indictments happen, but this assumption that you know you get rid of the fbi and you get it it, it is
0: if you had told me 10 years ago that it would be the republican party arguing this i would have laughed so just more broadly speaking um your fellow you and your fellow countrymen are you all just watching this scratching your heads do you do you worry about the constancy and reliability of the united states as you know as an ally is that a conversation that is happening in the UK, or do you guys just chalk it up to, the Americans are weird, but they eventually get to the right position, so don't worry about it. So
1: there's a very immediate way in which this is gonna be tested, which is, it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin's policy is to try and hold out for another 18 months in the hope of a Trump presidency, which would mean that he could more or less keep his gains or some of his gains in Ukraine. And so from that point of view, yes, it's a very immediate and live discussion. But honestly, Jonah, and I, I kind of, I really hate having to say this, but all of my life until very recently, uh, I regarded, as a lot of people here did, the US as basically a, an exporter of good things, of good values, freedom and democracy. And yeah, I've, I've imperfect, we all make mistakes, but broadly, the, the definition of what a good country is, the grown up in the room. And what's happened in the last sort of five or six years, it goes beyond Trump. The big export from the US now, culturally, uh, really because of the power of US media, is identity politics, and it's it's utterly captured the way in which uh, the British discourse happens. So, I, 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 I as God is my witness, if you go into a primary school in this country, uh, Rosa Parks or Malcolm X will be more familiar names than you know John Locke or John Milton. Um, We've. You know, if, if you're a white conservative, you're called a Klansman. If you're a black conservative, you're called an Uncle Tom. You know, <laughs> never mind how rude all this is. It, what's it got to do with us, right? I mean, apart from anything, you know, the, the the big ethnic minority here yeah. is not black people. It's it's South Asian people, and yet, you know, this 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 absurd cosplaying reached its its, its kind of hilarious height uh, in the summer of 2020 when, in response to the George Floyd killing, we we had the extraordinary sight of white British BLM protesters shouting, hands up, don't shoot, at unarmed (laughs) London policemen. And and on one level, it's kind of hilarious. On another level, we are importing a needless row. You know, Selma and segregation was not our story. And yet, if you were a little black kid, if you were a little black British kid, you know, just, just kind of catching the news on the edge of your peripheral vision, you would very naturally assume that Cop, white coppers in this country were going around murdering black people and it's it, 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 it's it's a very very sad thing that i say this, but it, it it's no longer you know we we used to we used to u s movies and u s music and and the power of u s news used to be broadly a good thing like a reminder that there was a a good country out there compared to lots of the other ones
0: i'm not sure that's true right now yeah i mean um macron right he was Trying to, he had that big speech a couple of years ago about how wokeness is um, sort of a foreign mental disease that is in, or virus that is invading our country. And, and I have to say, I had much less sympathy for the French given how many intellectual viruses they have uh, infected the United States with over the last <laughs> half century. You know, it's like, oh, you don't, it doesn't feel good, does it? No. You know, like now you know how we feel about SART.
1: <laughs> oh. Yes exactly. A bit like a bit like uh, apparently the the, the, the conquistadors brought syphilis back from the new world but you know kind of given <laughs> what they had given to the new world in terms of smallpox mumps measles whatever yeah yeah i think that's right i mean but it is true that not speaking english is a, is a, is a partial defense against this uh this madness and if you're french you have the extra defence of anything that comes out of the US, you're automatically against. So that's, that kind of has helped them on this one. Right. I, I asked Jonathan Haidt about this when I was last in New York, because he, he's my guru and I sit at his feet whenever I pass through that city. And he said that part, part of, the, he said, you know, woke uh, or fragility that he calls it is largely an Anglosphere phenomenon, partly for the reason we've just given, that it's, it's linguistic. But partly he said, because of the way in which universities are structured in English speaking countries, so they're all basically modeled in the end on Oxford and Cambridge. They are elite and residential, and he said you know if you if you go to a technical school if you're if you're living at home if you've got a job while you're studying or or you or you're with your parents, you can't be infected because woke does not survive the amused reaction of your parents or your coworkers you know so you've got to be kind of ripped out of society and and placed with a bunch of other people who think the way you do so that you get into these purity spirals
0: yeah that's that's an interesting point and and heights my guru and all sorts of things. I do think that there's some, there's a little bit more to it insofar as, I I, I think you can make an argument, and I've, I, I've made the argument, that wokeness in some ways is essentially a Veblen good, um, in the sense that being able to speak this nonsense is a way of signaling that your parents could afford, to indoctrinate you in this nonsense. You know, it used to be that you were, you proved you were cultured if you could speak French. And that was a sign that you had the right tutors or went to the right schools or you know, had the right- Or even more, that
1: you could speak Latin and Greek because French had some theoretical application. Whereas sure. classic, which was the basis of a private education in this country as late as when I started school, um, was purely a kind of conspicuous consumption.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, it's a good point. The only distinction I would make is that French and a lot of non-French countries, w- including Russia, was the, the language of the court. Right? right. And so for a lot of the left progressive meritocracy, speaking this language is, you know, knowing the shibboleths is a way you screen people out uh, who aren't members of your tribe. And like, so literally, I mean, putting your pronouns up on your Zoom screen is like wearing military insignias, you know, delineating what, what army you're part of. And, um, and so I think that that's part of what has happened here.
1: Yeah, because, because the pronouns, in my experience anyway, are never surprising, right? You never think, oh, thank heaven you told me that, because <laughs> otherwise I'm going to terrible so far. It is purely, purely a way of, as you say, putting on the, the badge.
0: So American conservatism, you're not going to be surprised to learn, I think is kind of a hot mess. And we can talk about the sort of the, the the fondness for the new fondness for industrial policy, protectionism, all of these things, which I know must give you agita. But um, I was recently in the UK, and I was asking some folks how much of a hot mess the conservative movement there is, their conservative party. You know, it's a little different, but um, and the basic answer I got was it's a mess but within normal parameters while in america it's a mess outside of normal parameters is is that about right i mean how how are how are you guys doing over there
1: yeah so i mean the, the, there is no equivalent of trump and i know this this always disappoints people who get their news from the new york times who loved to imagine that boris johnson was trump but boris is a, you know he's a very clever guy he's a very self-aware guy uh, and he's a very polite man i mean it, it you know it it was really not uh, the coincidence of timing of Brexit and Trump did not actually mean that they were the same phenomenon. Um, but look, I mean, I think, I think conservatives the world over and you know, in the US as well as here are suffering from kind of long lockdown. The lockdowns moved the dial, the relationship between state and citizen. We became uh, habituated to the idea that we needed to ask permission to use our own property, to travel, and much more than that and much worse than that. The perceived threat of the pandemic flicked switches in our brains, made us more collectivist, more authoritarian, more intolerant of any kind of outlier behavior or eccentricity. Uh, and rather like during the Second World War, I'm afraid that means that for years to come, the electorate will be much more demanding of the smack of firm government. Uh, you know, we, 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 the UK, if you like, kind of began to diverge a bit from the rest of the Anglosphere after 1940 because of the experience of conscription and mobilization being so much more intense and for longer. And the powers which the state had seized on a supposedly contingent basis in 1940 were not returned after 1945. Um, on the contrary, the state kept getting bigger. Uh, and I'm afraid I can see the same thing here. So in a way, if you, if you screen out the character of Trump, and you look at the appeal of, you know, onshoring and big government and, and using the state to reward your friends and and you know not having any uh, truck with with sort of taking welfare away from people and all that. That's actually become a surprisingly mainstream position among conservatives the world over. Uh, Do you think that that kind of worried me? Just to take this away from Trump, because I don't want, I don't want people to think I'm obsessed with the guy. I was a, a very early lockdown critic, and it's. it's I mean, from the start, and it, it was about the most unpopular thing I've ever done in, in, in politics or in, in commentary. So I was very in favor of Ron DeSantis because of what he achieved in Florida, because of the way he held out against all this resistance and uh, against all this pressure and, and was ultimately vindicated. But I have to say, I, I thought, what a comment on the state of conservatism that we think that he thinks it's okay and, and everyone else thinks it's okay to tell private businesses that they are not allowed to require face masks. You know, that, that a guy in a, a cafe or a small shop is told you may not require a vaccine mandate. Now I, I thought vaccine mandates were, were nonsense, right? But isn't the, was it, it am I imagining this, Jonah? Don't, don't we remember a time when there would have been an assumption in favor of freedom and property and ownership rights, rather than both sides saying, this is a culture war and we should we should marshal the full coercive power of the law. To sort of hurt the people we don't like.
0: So, I have a couple of questions because, first of all, almost every Brit I know or follow on the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, we're all anti-lockdown people, all appalled by all that kind of stuff. And so, it's interesting to hear you say that conservatives in the UK are were more statist than the impression that I got. And maybe I'm just getting a mis misread because of, of the the selective bias of who I follow and from that world. I'll tell you, I was much more of a middle of the road guy on all the COVID stuff. I was, you know, I got got to the point where listeners would start complaining that I say it too often, said it too often, but I was like, I'm not anti-mask and I'm not pro-mask. I'm sort of anti-anti-mask. And I'm sort of anti, and, and, you know, like I, the, the people who got too worked up about the stuff one way or the other, at least in the beginning, were the ones I had a problem with. So if I, you know, in DC... I would see people driving alone in their cars with masks on. I would see people jogging in DC summer heat with masks on. I think that's frigging crazy. I also think it's crazy to yell at somebody at a store for wearing a mask. You know, if they want to wear it, that's freedom and Liberty to me, right? That kind of thing. I was for the lockdown stuff about the first two weeks. And then my enthusiasm declined steadily thereafter. But, um, I think that the, problem that we have in the States right now is that I think you're right. DeSantis basically handled it better than almost anybody else. But the problem is, is, is you have to be, if you're because of negative polarization, you know, negative polarization just means that you hate the other party more than you like your own essentially. And so everything has to be taken to a point to where the other side feels aggrieved. Otherwise you're not really leading. And that's sort of the essence of why all of these culture war fights, whether you're on one side or the other, everyone has to sort of twist the knife. Um, otherwise their own side isn't celebrating, you know, you're, you're speaking truth to power BS. And I don't know how you get out of that. I mean, federalism and subsidiarity are supposed to get us out of some of this stuff because, but because of the nature of polarization, I mean, you started before talking about how We're exporting our garbage culture war fights to you guys, you know, so like this idea that you can be in a safe harbor outside of politics in the United States because you just happen to live in quote unquote flyover country. Those days are kind of over. There is no, the whole cliche, all politics is local, no longer applies in the United States. That's profoundly unhealthy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying actually. There was. Uh, do you know who I mean by uh, Unamuno, the Basque philosopher uh, Miguel de Unamuno? I, I, there was when you were talking. I was. I
0: hate admitting I don't know any philosophers, but um, but I don't know. I don't think I'm not up to speed on Basque philosophers.
1: Some Spanish guy, but he wrote. He's, he wrote. <laughs> there was a lovely line where he said, "Spain is divided between the anti-Xs who favour Z, or Z, and the anti-Zs who favour X." Right, it, negative polarization and 2 years later those two factions were shooting at each other because they had run out of they they could no longer see each other as opponents they saw each other as enemies and and you could you could trace the descent of that country into civil war um civility and courtesy and moderation are virtues in politics because they make that unthinkable and i is it still unthinkable in the us i would have said 10 years ago, completely unthinkable, right? But I mean, again, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm speaking from the outside as a friend of the US and a friend of uh, of American democracy. So correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but is it now utterly inconceivable that you could have another highly contested election, uh, that the result was uh, again, a close one, but that this time the various Republican officials who honored their oath to the constitution have been removed precisely of having done that, you could have rival sets of electors in some states. You could conceivably have two different presidents claiming a mandate and beginning to appoint their cabinets and leaving individual states to decide which one was legitimate. i'm not I'm not saying that that is is likely i'm I'm not even saying that it's 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 a big possibility, but it is no longer unthinkable. and I think it it was unthinkable ten years ago.
0: I mean, one of the things I'm most angry at Trump about is just simply he's ruined our ability to say we've had these two hundred and 50 years of um, the peaceful transfer of power. Peaceful transfer of power is like one of these things in political science that, and political philosophy that is more important than a whole bunch of, you know, mechanisms of how you decide elections and all that kind of stuff. That's the, you know, like, I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, but the most important election in, in developing countries is the second one, right? Is the one where the guy who was in power the first time leaves power because that's, and, and to muck around with that is terrible. And we had a piece at the dispatch recently, I'm, I'm blanking on the author, but it was very good. Um, noting that if you took, if you look at the timeline closely and seriously about what John Eastman and some of these guys and Jeffrey Clark and some of these guys were arguing for, um, they were saying, oh, we got to get these fake electors, you know, so that we can send it to the house and blah, blah, blah. And someone says, look, there's going to be riots in the streets. And Eastman says, well, that's either Eastman or Clark says, that's why we have the Insurrection Act. So in other words, if you take these guys seriously, what they were saying is the scheme that we're pushing to steal an election is going to lead to violence. And then we're going to order either the National Guard or the U.S. military to use violence to put down these people who are actually right to be angry. (laughs) That's... Again, I I don't think we're heading towards a civil war anytime soon, but the idea that that is is something that in the highest levels of a White House and the Justice Department, you have people who are seriously committing to a chain of events that would give them permission to ignite popular violent protests and then use the military to put it down. That gets us to pretty close to, to the sort of these worst case scenario things that you're conjuring. Correct. I mean,
1: it, it, it was Karl Popper who said this, wasn't it, in, in uh, the Open Society Incentive. He, he said, look, forget democracy being a kind of theoretically brilliant system because it actually isn't. You've got all sorts you once you really overthink, you know, would the, could, a, could a, a majority of 50% plus one establish an autocracy or whatever, you, you have all sorts of conceptual problems with democracy. He said, think of it instead as something that it was not intended to do, but actually is really good at doing. It's a, a way of getting people out of power without bloodshed. And if you if you see the good of democracy as being enabling you to turn the rascals out, then lots of other good things happen. For example, it lowers the price of participation. It means that good people, you know, successful, respectable citizens will stand for election because the price for failure is not exile or being shot, because you have a mechanism for, for peaceful power. It also means that you habituate. The, the, the electorate to the idea of civil and civilized disagreement, that you have the loyal opposition, that they're not against the country, that they're still doing their best. And it acts as a constraint on those in power because they think whatever whatever I do today is going to be in the hands of that guy tomorrow, so I will exercise self-control when it comes to aggrandizing the state. Now, If, if you see uh, democracy in those terms, then I think... W- w- you know, again, it's not even Trump. It's the indifference of Americans who should know better to process when they happen to favour a particular outcome. This is the really, really dangerous thing. And it leaves me wondering, I'm going to plug your book because this is the one uh, audience that that uh, <laughs> will be familiar with it, but the, your, your, your fantastic uh, book about the suicide of the West, lurid title, but great thesis that the that all of this is kind of fragile and artificial, and that actually we are quite tribal creatures, that the most natural thing for us is to want the guy who is the head of our tribe, that the weird thing is that people ever gave their loyalty to some desiccated piece of parchment on the wall of the, the National Archives or to some imaginary ideal. In a way, right? The, the odd thing is not that we're having Trump now. It's We had the previous 200 years. What a miracle that was. But given that it was such a miracle. Right. Given that we can see how much happier and wealthier and freer uh, people became, how much more fulfilled they became, how much longer their lives were and all the rest of it, isn't it worth fighting for?
0: Isn't it worth being just a little grateful for, right? You know, just a little sort of, hey, this worked out pretty well, thank you, is is a sentiment that is so lacking these days. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's master's or doctoral degree gcu's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration with over 330 academic programs gcu provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams the pursuit to serve others is
1: yours find your purpose at gcu private christian affordable visit
0: gcu.edu i, I agree with you entirely and and carl Karl carl Par- popper i know i'm not Basque philosophers, I'm I'm behind the eight ball on. But I agree. I I sometimes think, and maybe I should write about this, is that I think that one of the things that, you know how Tom Sowell has the whole conflict of visions, unconstrained versus constrained vision, which I think is a useful way to think about these things. But I think another way to think about it is that the conservative, rightly understood or temperamental conservative, however we want to put it, sees most of our valuable and cherished institutions and practices not as a path to supreme happiness or perfection or utopianism or anything like but as a hedge against disaster, right? And so a- education, for instance, you know, my people, the reason why Jewish mothers want their kids to be doctors and lawyers isn't because it's going to make them rich, it's because it's going to guarantee they won't be poor. I am not for democracy because I think, in some John Dewey or Herbert Crowley kind of sense, that it is going to uh, activate our purest Rousseauian selves and we'll live in a perfect state of bliss and harmony with our society. It's that democracy is a hedge against all of the terrible things that happen <laughs> when you don't have politicians held, leaders held accountable, and we don't have a, a society that feels like it buy in um, to how decisions are made. And so democracy leads to lots of bad outcomes, but it is a really great insurance policy against much, much worse ones. And I think this, this is sort of the divide between, first of all, people who know history and people who don't, but also between a certain kind of conservative outlook that wants a good society, but knows you can't have a perfect society and a certain kind of progressive or Rousseauian outlook that thinks, oh, if we could just jigger the dials exactly the right way on society, everyone will be happy in every regard and all the unity of goodness will proceed to the sunny uplands of history. Yes. I mean, I think la-
1: lack of perspective is the curse of our age. Uh, people don't notice the 99% of things that have gone better and they focus on the one thing that they don't like and they smash everything up. And, and you know, that that is a, I mean, I'm not saying anything particularly clever or, or original. I mean, that that is the the whole basis of Burkean conservatism. But I wonder whether all this doesn't need to be taught. Um, one of the quotes that I picked up from you, or from one of your books, was that great observation of Hannah Arendt, the other uh, another exemplar of, of being an educated Jewish child as a guarantee. Who, <laughs> God knows she had, uh, you know, she she knew what the uh, how bad the alternatives could be. But that fantastic observation she made that every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children, right? All of the stuff that you and I talk about, you know, enlightenment, the scientific method, the idea that instead of having some sacerdotal truth handed down, you can experiment and debate and maybe find a, 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 an adjustment that, that turns previous assumptions on their heads. The idea that what you're saying is either true or false on its own terms, regardless of whether you're black or white or female or whatever, the, all of these none of it comes naturally. None of it is intuitive in a tribal species, And all of it has to be taught. We have to be habituated, we have to be acculturated to, 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 to think this way. Now, that used to be the function of education. Of universities that were supposed to be temples of the Enlightenment, but also of, of secondary schools. So, you know, The idea that someone you don't like might still have something useful to say is something that needs to be taught. And of course, what worries me uh, is not just that universities are not doing this and that schools are not doing this, but that increasingly they are doing exactly the opposite. Instead of teaching the difficult counter-cyclical truths that we're all responsible for ourselves. We're not answerable for what our grandfather did or whatever. They are doing the opposite. They're saying the most important thing about you is that you're female or white or whatever it is. And well, you you, you quoted the great Tom Sowell a second ago. I mean, I I keep coming back to that fantastic observation of his that you can't sustain a free polity on the basis that two babies born on the same day come into this world with a pre-existing set of grievances against each other. I mean, that's obvious to us, but it, I, I'm afraid it needs to be taught. And at the moment, the opposite is being taught. All
0: right, let's pivot a little bit, because I know we wanted both wanted to talk about this. Um, speaking about democracy being the least bad and um, and the dangers of autocracy and arbitrary power and whatnot. I think we are both, we might phrase it differently because you were this euphonious British guy. Um, and I sound like I smoked six packs of cigarettes this morning. But... Um, We both come down basically on the side that Russia is double plus on good and, um, and has, you know, uh, deeply, profoundly, um, dysfunctional problems built into a long lineage. It's funny. Like, so I just, I'm almost done with this Orlando Feige's book about the history of Russia and, um, I keep putting it off for other things and, um. And it's funny, your book about how the the English invented freedom, you know, your your story about English liberalism is Whiggish, I think it's fair to say. Um, but it's, and it, it's, it's a an incredible. And, and if nobody's read it, if anybody out there hasn't read it and they're interested in these things, it is an immensely accessible, interesting, useful book. But you take the reader through the story of of how these institutions starting like the seventh century, made English people weird. I mean, that's the, the base, the fundamental reason why we have Liberty and you're telling is, you know, I mean, the the Greeks and Romans had something to do with it. And there's a Judeo Christian in in the Bible and all that, but really in the Anglosphere, it's because the English are just weird people and they had these weird set of events and you're not alone in the Ernest Geller, um, um, you know, makes this point that basically humanity stepped out of, a, the natural environment into a manufactured environment, basically in England. Um, but there were these institutions that, that, you know, I guess starting with not allowing people to marry their cousins and moving forward to like man's home is his castle and the, the Witan and all these kinds of things and a weak monarch with strong, you know, uh, you know, regional powers that led to this sort of space that allowed liberalism to emerge. And what's funny is that when you read the Fagus book, it's the exact opposite story in Russia. Centralized Czar owns the whole country. All the nobles are basically colonial governors for the centralized power. And there are no intermediate institutions in russia basic no real civil society to speak of um until late eighteenth or late nineteenth centuries. And that's a completely different thing. and and it's why I think England will endure and why basically Russia shouldn't. All right. So uh, take it from there. I'm sorry to monologue.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, uh, I, I, I totally own up to, to Whig as a title. It was good enough for Edmund Burke and Thomas Jefferson and Friedrich Hayek. So it's got to be, you know, I'm with Friedrich. You. and Friedrich Hayek it, it said exactly what you said. You know, yeah, the Greeks and the Romans had a bit of stuff. But really, uh, constitutional freedom, as we understand it, is basically a 17th century uh, it has its germs, really, in, in, the, in the, the quarrels of uh, between Parliament and the King in the seventeenth century. I, I can't lay claim to the cousin marriage thing. That was the brilliant Joe Henrich, who um, uh, I again cannot <laughs> recommend too highly. Who, 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 no, not not by the way, to, to weird as a <laughs> as an anthropological description. I mean, I, I, I think he is. I've never met the guy, but I love his books. Um, th- this idea of of the individual being incompatible with the kind of clans that you get when people m- m- marry close relatives which is which happened everywhere else everywhere else you know uh you know Eastern Europe India pre-columbian India Africa China everywhere you know um all sorts of these things happened by happy accidents you know um uh and where but anyway the, the thrust of what you were saying because I I was really uh I really enjoyed the piece you wrote about the crappiness of Russia and I mean you wrote it as, as you always do in this in this lighthearted and enjoyable and funny way but I I really then went away and I thought about it and I thought this is actually this is a significant and immediate debate because the the foreign policy establishments of all western countries including in DC and including in London are currently of the view that we must preserve Russia for fear of something worse yeah it'd be nice to get rid of Putin but you know the chaos that would follow if there was a breakup and warlords squabbling over nuclear weapons and all the rest of it is so unthinkable. And I, I, I think we are at risk of repeating the mistake we made in 1990, 1991. Remember when George H. W. went to Kiev and he made his chicken Kiev speech? He said, "When we will not recognize countries if they replace a distant autocracy with the the, the you know tyranny of nationalism and all of this." Uh, and first of all, it's not in our gift, right? There are nine at least nine regions and republics of Russia that have independence referendums ready to go in the event that this regime is defeated. Large chunks of Siberia, parts of the Caucasus, even Archangel, some of them are resource rich republics who have had enough of a regime that conscripts their young men and sends them nothing in return. And we need to think about what relationship would we want with these successor states? uh, And what are we gonna ask in exchange for recognition? In, in terms of denuclearization in terms of you know so after the USSR we were big on denuclearization we pushed that and we got it uh we were not so big on civil institutions uh, and with the exception of the Baltic states we didn't really get that We need to do some muscular thinking now but the bigger point is the idea of preserving Russia presupposes that it's worth preserving and my contention uh, I admit entirely prompted by your blog on the subject, <laughs> is that Russia in its present form, that is to say Russia as an imperial multi-ethnic Eurasian state, cannot but be a thorn in the side of the free world. It's intrinsic in how it's structured. And a, uh, you know, part of why we're seeing what we're seeing in Ukraine, why we're seeing these threats against the Baltic states, even against Poland is because all politically aware Russians, I don't think Putin is an outlier here, all of them feel the phantom pain of their amputated republics. Uh, Decolonization for them was not something as experienced by France or Portugal or Britain, where colonies went their way, but the old country remained as it had always been in its old borders, secure in its identity. Russian identity was always imperial. If you take those subject peoples away, you're left with something that is no longer Russia. You can call it Muscovy, if you like. You're left with, with a sort of pre, pre-Ivan the Terrible Princeton. Uh, now, my contention is that that would be, it could not be worse than what we have now. Uh, there is a possibility that such a rump Russian state, a Muscovite state, you know, based around St. Petersburg and, and Moscow, might a little bit however imperfectly but a little bit like turkey when it stopped being ottoman might modernize and adapt and uh, copy some of the western norms indeed rediscover its its uh, um, uh, allow for a belated victory of the of the westernizers over the slavophiles if you like um, certainly we should not stand in its way if that looks like happening it would be crazy for us artificially to try and hold together a state that with one or two exceptions has been an utter pain in the ass to us all the way through pre-modern and modern times for exactly the reason you gave. You know, since if, you, if, you, if you're really generous and you count the early Putin as well as the Yeltsin years as democratic, plus the Kerensky government, you know. Which was like eight months or
0: something, right? <laughs> right.
1: You've got, as have got, since 1522, as far as I can see, Russia has been a dangerous, nasty autocracy for all but 24 years, at, at most, at, being as generous as I can. And like you
0: say, that that ain't a whole lot of liberal muscle memory to fall back on. I remember there was a debate we used to have around the, at, at N.R. where Bill Clinton or somebody had talked about what was the worst legacy of the Cold War, and I, maybe Obama, and it was, and, and everyone was, well, it was nuclear weapons, whatever. and. Um, it seems to me, if I remember right, my argument was actually the worst legacy of the cold war was that Russia throughout the cold war seeded conspiracy theories, misinformation, you know, the CIA created AIDS, you know, you can go back as far as you like, um, foment. I mean, a lot of the ugliness in the United States in terms of the black power stuff in the race riots, I'm not saying Russia created it. I'm not saying it anything like that. But like Russia egged it on. Russia supported these the, these sorts of movements. The rise of the neo-fascist guys in Eastern Europe and other places, a lot of that is Russia's doing. The legacy of the cold, I, at the time, I thought that was because the Soviets did that. But then the, long, the more you look at Russian history, you know, protocols of elders of Zion is one of the most enduring psyops ever by an intelligence service. Um, and you can go back and Russia was actually messing up, exporting sinister, evil things to the rest of the world for centuries. And that's something that, you know, I mean, like, I mean, in a weird way, Kennan is, was right in the sense that the Soviet Union was an extension of the sort of the natural vital interest approach of, of Russia. But I think as a sort of a guy who loved Russia and didn't like communism, I mean, I'm not, I'm not deeply read in on Kennan anymore. He failed to sort of like close the circle and say, yeah, but Russia was a bad actor before Lenin. <laughs> and so the continuity part is not necessarily something that we should give that much respect for because it's just a long, unbroken record of being a bad actor in the world. And, and we should be fair, some good literature. From your lips to God's
1: ears. I mean, it's actually, you can put this in Leninist terms, right? Russia was exporting its internal contradictions. Because it was a really nasty, brutal autocracy, it was constantly expansionist. And I mean, I just find it extraordinary that 70% of Russians now have a a favorable view of Stalin. I mean, imagine how we would feel if 70% of Germans had a favorable view of Hitler, right? I mean, that, that is a really sick, serious problem. Uh, about and we all we all look the other way, but this is kind of intrinsic. And I mean, I, by the way, I, I, I'm I'm really grateful to you for bringing that that up. I mean, we we miss the Leninist roots of some of this woke stuff, right? The extent to which anti-colonialism um, of the kind brilliantly described in Dinesh D'Souza's book before he went off the ledge, um, anti-colonialism, which which found its way into the into the sets textbooks in a lot of these places in the global south, and then. Is now enunciated by the leaders of those countries who were brought up with it, was disseminated by Soviet agents spreading Leninist doctrine. You know, the the idea that the West became wealthy through plunder rather than through free contract, private property, independent courts, etc., is an absolutely critical communist argument, and it has nothing to do with history and everything to do with trying to discredit liberal capitalism. And I think it's really important to recognize the roots of it i don't say it's the the sole source of it we 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 uh we make plenty of mistakes ourselves but it was a a, a a the 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 archetypes about sort of evil white imperialists and the the kind of the image of it you look back at some of those cold war cuban and angolan and soviet posters and you 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 see who it is who's who's pushing this all the way through so where does that leave us with russia well i mean i feel this is again this is you know and Goldberg contramundum, not for the first time. We're, we're, we're the, <laughs> the, the only people who can can look beyond this. But it, it it seems to me that you to break that cycle, you need to have a, a different conception of what Russia is. So the Russians, instead of seeing themselves as heirs of Ivan the Terrible and Stalin, see themselves as heirs of some of the the, the, the great writers. And the where you came in, the big problem with the, the legacy of the Cold War, Russia. In 1991, was never asked to face up to what it had done during the previous 70 years. It never had to own up to the responsibility for what it had done in the Baltic states, in Poland, in Moldova, and so on. That is not a mistake. If, if, if Russia loses this war in Ukraine, anyone who says for sure which way it's going to go is is a, is a fool or a liar. But if we have the opportunity. That is not a mistake we should repeat. They they need to confront the nature of the regime they were before they can begin to move on so that, like West Germany and Austria after 1945, they can rethink who they are and prosper within a different kind of model.
0: Yeah, although uh, it's a little far afield, but I will argue that Austria was late to some of that process because they got, because of the Cold War, labeled first victim. They were not the first victim of, of Nazi aggression. They tiptoed away with a lot less than their share of the blame. That is true. Hey, so I, I want to ask you, switch gears again. So I have this, I have a weird question. I always ask British people when I'm in the UK because I'm kind of fascinated by this. And, and the question is, what is the second city of of United Kingdom or Great Britain. Like what is, what is, what is England's second city in America? We got lots of second cities, right? You know, Chicago calls itself a second city, but like we have, and and I was having this, I was asking this question and having this conversation with some uh, British journalists recently, and I got a little deeper into it. And I, I think that one of the problems that you guys have is that if you are a ambitious, young, energetic, entrepreneurial person in the United Kingdom, you basically have to move to London. There is no other place to go. And that is creating, as this friend of mine was saying, it's creating, first of all, enormous bottlenecks just for housing, where you start to have young people who say, you want me to work half as ho- twice as hard to make an extra 25% when that will not change my material circumstances at all. And people just sort of start losing the initiative. And, um, you know, in the United States, one of the great things we have about this country is just so big. You can be an incredibly successful person and live a good life in one of 50, 75 different cities in this country to one extent or another. Yeah. If you want to go into fashion you have to go to certain cities, at least for a little while, you want to go into specific things. But even in Germany, you have, you know, if you want to go to journalism, you go to one city. If you want to go into business, you go to another city you guys have such a concentrated cultural capital where everything from politics to finance to everything in between is concentrated there. And I, I'm just wondering, and, I, and the reason I bring it up is one, cause you're here, but two, I just saw a chart this morning about how if you removed the GDP, if you moved London from the UK's GDP, the rest of the country is poorer than Mississippi, which is our poorest state. Um, I'm just wondering how you've, feel about, what are your thoughts about this sort of the bottlenecking of your elites in your country?
1: Yeah. I mean, you've described it very well. I mean, it's extremely, uh, a, a much more perceptive take than you get from a lot of Brits. Um, uh, I mean, by the even down to, it's not clear whether our second city is Birmingham or Manchester depends on whether you count the sort of technical borders of, or whether the, whether it's greater Manchester. But, um, but Yeah. This, this has been going on for a long time, I mean, for hundreds of years, probably even since the, the 13th or 14th century, for reasons that historians have never really adequately explained. No other country experienced this vast uh, concentration of, of population and, and power in the capital uh, to the same degree. It has some advantages, right? So we're doing some amazing things with driverless cars and the reason we can do amazing things with driverless cars is because we have the car people and the finance people and the regulators all in this oxford cambridge london triangle um they're not spread out with some of them in california and some of them in dc and some of them in new york and some of them in detroit or whatever but the downside which you have uh which you've enunciated is 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 that we we have a overpriced overcrowded capital city A a nice hinterland around it, and then a handful. I mean, no, you know, if there there are one or two other cities that are either uh, you know attractive architecturally or that you'd want to live in for you know in Edinburgh or Liverpool or something. But generally, when you leave London, you you come to live in a village. I mean, this is what we're what what we're good at here. But that isn't great uh, in terms of economics or culture. And you're right that the the US is so blessed. With having competing jurisdictions, with competing tax levels and so on, keeping each other in check. Uh, going right back to how we started, when you said federalism might be the answer. And of course, it should be, right? But we we both know that in this world of the anti-X's versus the anti-Z, uh, one side would say, Well, why don't we just devolve all this power? And the other side would say, No, we're not gonna let you, right? It's a, it's the age-old thing. The libertarian says, look, you have your beliefs, I have mine, let's just agree to disagree. The socialist says, no deal, hater, right? And but but while you've got it, um, and with all of the the problems, the U.S. is still a, a remarkably devolved and decentralised system. I think that is that is the lifeblood of the republic, which is yet another reason, by the way, why why it it, it pains me when I hear Republican politicians fail to distinguish between I disapprove of this thing and we should ban this yeah. thing.
0: No, I mean that's um, metaphorically. I understand there are all sorts of real world distinctions that make the analogy not great but it's it's sort of like you know you have the bbc english where everybody learns this is how you're supposed to speak english and some dialects kind of die out we kind of have the bbc english version of politics now where everybody either gets their political vision from this more like complex of msnbc and new york times and i'm a i'm a committed both sides are i think they're a deep and Profound problems on the left and the right these days, and they are not. But they're not symmetrical. And but one of the reasons we we lose sight of, particularly in in, in negative polarization, right? I mean, everything is catalytic. Everything is synthesis because everybody is responding to the feedback from the other side, and then responding to the response, and and on and on it goes into the abyss, and. Um, one of the real problems with the American left is, in part with woke, is that this consortium of essentially foundations and academics and 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 a few other activists, the American left has been so colonized by a single theory of the universe that it's homogenous now. And there's no room for Christopher Hitchens the way there used to be. There's no room for um Arguments that class is more important than race, right? It's either intersectionality or race. But there's no sort of the Marxist argument always has to lose to the racial argument in any real context, contest of power. You're not allowed to have different points if, if you have a different point of view on the transgender stuff, that makes you a right winger. And the problem with that is that when you have such a pure medium of, of sort of groupthink, the message you send, I mean, there are lots of problems with it. One, because it's all wrong in this context, part of the problem is, is, the signal that you send from these cultural institutions, to the people outside these cultural institutions is there's just no place for me in any of these institutions, right? If, if you, if you think calling mothers birthing person makes sense and you're called a bigot, if you disagree, you, you don't want any access to, you don't want to, to participate in any of that. And and I think that this is the, one of the reasons why. And similarly, if you think that being a, a rude jerk is the highest form of politics, um, you're not going to persuade anybody. And so you just get this, this, this real dysfunction where everybody sees the worst sides of the other side and can't, does not, and their own side will not make room for the possibility that the other side is not actually as homogenous and as stupid. As it's as, as the Potemkin facade seems to be, right,
1: and 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 actually, then then incredibly, both sides start living up to their own negative caricature. I mean, it, it's 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 a horrible thing to watch. I mean, how much of this is totally new? I, I can't say. I mean, I think the the the, the negative, uh, you know, the negative polarization. I even a long time, I, I was quite unusual at the time as a as a conservative in that I was um I was quite pro immigration I mean provided it was controlled and legal but, but I was quite I was in favor of more of it um but that argument would never be it would would never never came close to winning acceptance on the left because I wasn't against the people who were against it I I didn't uh, I didn't I wasn't pro immigration because I was anti bigot and anti racist I just thought there was a there was an economic argument for it and we had space and so that you know in the same way I, I was very uh I was quite early in being in favor of um civil partnerships uh for gay people and removing what struck me as some um anomalous legal asymmetries that people didn't have the same hospital visiting rights, inheritance rights, and so on. That was quite an unusual conservative position when i when i started when I first took it up in the beginning of the nineties, but again, it never made me an ally of the people who agreed with me because what really got their juices flowing was denouncing the bigots, which, and I, I thought it was a reasonable thing to fall out over. So, so how much of this is new, I don't know. But here's a thing that, I, that I'd like to ask you, Jonah, uh, given the unique position you, you have in this debate. One of the things <laughs> is because of exactly what you say, the way in which the identity politics trumps everything else, quite a few people who've always been on the left in, in Britain to all intents and purposes, are now on the right in in terms of all these culture wars. I'm thinking of people like uh, Claire Fox of the Institute of Ideas, uh, Julie Birchill, the the controversial and brilliant uh, columnist, uh, Frank Ferretti, the the, the Marxist uh, professor in Kent, uh, even J.K. Rowling, right? All, All people who were kind of social Democrats or socialists, all of them, especially because of the trans issue, now effectively pushed onto the right to all intents and purposes. Now, we haven't seen the the same thing happen the other way around, but I think I detect a little bit of it in the US that anti-Trump conservatives, um, actual conservatives, you know, proper Reagan, small government conservatives, find that they cannot get any media outlet other than those that are left on a bunch of other stuff. And I wonder whether, I mean, you, you, you know, the, 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 all the people that I uh, like and respect, and the, you and and David French and and Jade Nordlinger and all the all the the people who have stuck to the conservatism that I used to understand. I find that there, you, know, you, you, I've mentioned, I think, pretty much the only three who I can still read on non-left <laughs> outlets, right? and and I wonder whether that whether the the same thing has happened on at least in the US on the other side that that uh, that the sort of um, the traditional, you know, Liz Cheney, Justin Amash type conservatives are just so outside the conservative movement that effectively they might as well be against it.
0: Yeah. So it, it's a- it's a complicated and painful subject. Um, and fortunately we're out of time. No, um, uh, (laughs) it's worthy of a longer conversation and, and maybe a little bit off air because I'm always reluctant to sort of name names on some of this stuff. Um, but yes, you're absolutely correct that, uh, there is, there are many rooms in the mansion of anti-Trumpism and, uh, some people, I mean, like, Jen Rubin of the and Max Boot of the Washington Post, who were once sort of essentially Reaganite conservatives, uh, they've just gone left, as far as I can tell. On, I, 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 I'm not a close student of everything that they write. Um, and to to Boot's credit, he at least admitted it in a long and at book length about why he had sort of he's not conservative anymore, in effect, and. Jen Rubin just pretends as if she stayed consistent when she takes the opposite positions and all sorts of things. There are others that I'm still friends with and would like to keep them friends, but who, um, I think, I think the, the, the pull of popular frontism, which is a term that, you know, you and I would use back in the day as a, it's a sign that we're history nerds, but it, you know, popular frontism used to be what we meant by tribalism in politics. And it's this, you know, no enemies to my left, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that the, you know, with this evolutionary psychologist called the coalition instinct has kicked in a lot of these people. And they just just simply decided that spending 40 years talking about being a pro-lifer doesn't really matter. Now, the only thing that matters is supporting, you know, anybody who will fight Trump. And, um, I find it dismaying. Then again, they find my position dismaying, which is the whole reason why I got into trouble on the right was because I refused to say things that I didn't believe to be true about Donald Trump. I feel like it would be grotesque ethically, um, and also my wife would kill me, um, if all of a sudden I was going to start saying things I didn't believe to be true um, to fight Donald Trump. Right. And, um, so I think Biden's a hot mess. I think the Biden administration is, is, you know, as is, is immensely worthy of criticism in all sorts of ways. I think this the Hunter Biden stuff may lead to impeachable things. I don't know yet, but it turns out, I mean, this is, again, this is why it's worth a larger conversation. It turns out, you know, that an enormous number of conservatives, including dear friends of mine, who I think are intellectually honest and sincere and good people who have not caved in. So I'm not, this is not the indictment that some people think it might be. But I think the Republican Party and the conservative movement lived in this sort of symbiotic state for so long. And so many conservatives prospered because of it. And I don't just mean prosper, I'm not, I'm not a Marxist thing. I just mean that they this was the path that their career would take off by basically seeing them self-conceptualizing as essentially political consultants by proxy. And the difficulty that you get into is that if you think your job is to not just sell republican policies um as truly conservative but to sell conservative ideas only if they are simpatico with the republican in, with 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 party partisan interests you kind of get blind to the fact that like the things that conservatives are supposed to be about may not map per- perfectly on to partisan interests going into various elections, and they certainly aren't going to map onto specific personalities in the parties. And um, and I think just an enormous number of people lost sight of that. And some, because they had lost sight of that to begin with, i me mean, put it this way. We know all the tr- pro-Trump people who lost sight of that. That's a common tale. We've seen it. It's disappointing. But it's the same thing that's happened with the people who have gone the never Trumpers who have basically become liberals is they've taken that same assumption that their job is to be water carriers for a party. And they said, okay, well, now that I'm anti-Trump and anti-Republican, I'm going to do that for Democrats now. And I think it's flawed either way, you know,
1: I wonder whether, I mean, that's really fascinating. Thank you that you put that, uh, you've explained that really clearly better than I've, I've understood it before. One thing that, that we, we forget is how tribalism doesn't stop for clever people, right? It, in fact, the evidence suggests slightly the opposite. Um, we are all quite good at reasoning backward from whom we like and then rationalizing their political beliefs to ourselves and pretending that we've been consistent and logical about it. You know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a real effort of will not to do that. Uh, a, a, a small example from the, the UK of this, which I think maps onto what's happened and, and what you've just described. The the last uh, leadership contest between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak uh, last summer, almost every Brexiter voted for Rishi, uh, voted for Liz Truss, who had voted Remain. Almost every Remainer voted for Rishi Sunak, who'd voted Leave. Right? Why was that? Basically because of the vibes, or as you and I in our geeky way might put it, because of the gestalt, right? Uh, Liz Truss <laughs> gave off brexit vibes. She said blunt things in a provincial accent and annoyed all the right people. Rishi Sunak, who, God bless him, had been for Brexit all the way through since he was a schoolboy, right? He didn't hover like Boris until the last minute. But he looks like a composite Romano with his thin ties and his tight suits and his immaculate hair. He looks like the CEO of some big multinational. And so people kind of started from, from the, the, the vibes and then reasoned backwards. And the, the really interesting thing to me is how the, the, the politically aware, educated, uh, knowledgeable people did it more than the people who don't really follow politics very much.
0: So it's funny you bring this up because I was just talking about this when I was over there. Um, One of my favorite essays is Orwell's Second Thoughts on James Burnham. And he makes the point in there, I'm sure others have made the point as well, that the intellectual classes would always make straight line projections about the course of the war. So if the Nazis had taken a city or had a victory, the intellectual classes would say, "Okay, I guess we're doomed. We're going to lose." And if the if the Allies had a good day or t- retook a place or whatever, um, they say, "Oh, we're going to win." And meanwhile, Orwell points out that your average Brit, you're just average blue collar middle class, you know, Brit was like, "Well, of course we're going to win. It's going to be a slog. It's gonna be good days and bad, but we're us. We're going to win." And and they were a much more reliable constituency for support for the war than the intellectual classes, and I think that there's something to that. I know Orwell's point is that there's something about intellectuals that worship power, and the problem. Pro- and he was criticizing Burnham for this. How fairly people can debate another time. Power worship leads to people making because intellectuals are pattern recognizing people. We're all pat- humans are pattern recognizing creatures, but intellectuals make a living from it. And so we take incomplete transitory in the moment data and immediately our imaginative powers allow us to extrapolate way into the future, um, all sorts of scenarios that we like or don't like or whatever. And I think that this is one of the great problems with intellectuals is uh, in both the left and the right is not having the confidence of our convictions. I mean, I always used to say people to audiences, I'm sure you say something similar, if you actually believe this stuff, markets are better, right? If you believe this stuff, that, that, that the rule of law is incredibly valuable, that property rights are important, and that socialism fails and market economies don't, and that trade is good, have some confidence that over time you'll be proven right and don't have this sort of apocalyptic thing about, well, the last election proves that we, we lost, so we have to throw away all of our policies, all of our preferences, all of our principles, and embrace some new industrial policy some new protectionism because that's what that's what that's the new hotness right now right and and the reason this podcast is called the remnant is it's, it's that was sort of Knox's point is that there are some things that are just immutably and internally true and worth fighting for even when they're unpopular and you know uh, you're you know you should basically be the 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 president of the uk chapter of the remnant as far as i'm concerned
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, no, you're 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 right. I mean, um, it was interesting. i mean, going going right back to to my Whig history. Uh, Hayek wrote an essay called "Why I'm Not a Conservative," uh, but he made the argument that a conservative in the Anglo-American tradition is conserving what in every other tradition is called liberalism. So that the, the the essence, you know, which is now a word so traduced, I'm afraid in in the US. I mean, it's still in Spain or somewhere, it still has its, its actual meaning of personal freedom and, you know, small government and rule of law and free trade and so on. But but uh, I think the the word has become so lost. But, but Hayek then came back to saying, I, I, I the more I think about it, the more I realize what I, what I have been all along as a Whig, an old wig, um, because... What really matters is is the rule of law and, and property rights and independent magistrates and everything else is a bonus. You know, free elections—that's a bonus. That's the cherry on the cake. But uh, but 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 the the idea that the people in power can't make up the rules as they go along—that is—that is, that is non negotiable. Um, again, we kind of need to teach that, don't we? I mean, isn't it slightly scary that you can get through uh, school and college? without ever really coming across that idea at all, never reading John Locke or you know, J.S. Mill or anyone of that kind. And, and, uh, and if we're not taught it, well, people are not gonna see what the problem is with the Caesarism of the Republican leadership now.
0: Particularly because Caesarism is natural and the stuff that we like isn't. And so absent positive education towards the right and good, People fall back on their software and the software is big man leadership and uh, tribalism. Yeah.
1: And by the way, not, not just kind of uh, nagging people who can't see it, right? I mean, this, is, this I think is the, the error for people like you and me. We need to be, uh, if we're interested in making a difference, uh, there's, there's, there's nothing to be gained by just saying, I told you so.
0: I agree, I agree.
1: Do you know who I mean by Robert Harris, historical novelist? Um, yeah. Uh, British historical novelist. Um, wrote, I mean, wrote, wrote lots of good stuff. He, he was a kind of Blairite is a Blairite lefty, but he wrote a fascinating book that was really about modern politics, but was set during the fall of the Roman Republic. It's his, his Cicero trilogy. And it's, it's beautifully observed because he spent a lot of time around British politicians. He really gets how they think. And so Cicero or Cicero's slave is the narrator. And there's a wonderful moment when they've just been defeated and Caesar is establishing his autocracy. And Cicero, in this ship as they flee, is saying to his slave, I've always seen myself as a physician of the body politic, uh, to, 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 to make little adjustments here and there. You can see that when it's someone like Caesar or Pompey, you can see that they are a threat to the Republic. They are men with gargantuan appetites who want to bend everyone to their will. The two-bit Caesarists that the founders were uh, worried against. He says, what you may not see, is that Cato, who, of course, in all the historiography and in all the Federalist papers is the hero because he stood for a Republican said, Cato has led us here just as much as they have because he wouldn't bend his <laughs> principles at all. He was so incorruptible and such an irritating know-it-all that he has led to this disaster just like they have, uh, which I thought was a, a really fascinating take and a reminder that politics is a, you know, actual practice of politics as opposed to commentary is a, is a, a game that necessarily involves compromise.
0: It's the difference between bending brittleness looks strong until it cracks and, but flexibility bends where it needs to bend, but while at the same time staying rooted. So Daniel and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for carrying me in my, um, fugue state. Um, and I hope to have you back on, you know, much sooner than the last, this last interval between your last appearance. Well,
1: it's always a pleasure, Jonah. And by the way, when you say you're in trouble with the right, for heaven's sake, don't think that you're not a a voice for the rest of us around the world. And don't think that what you're saying and writing and broadcasting goes unnoticed or unappreciated. It really does.
0: Thank you. You're very generous. Okay, so uh, Daniel Anand has left the studio. My apologies for my frumfring and and cottonmouth uh, uh, introductions and intercessions, but uh, such is the nature of the beast. Um, as you can tell, Anan and I are in something of a, uh, mutual admiration society. Um, I think he wildly overstates my, um, importance and, and role, but I'll take it. Um, and, uh, um, and I really do mean it when I say you should check out his, his book on how the English invented freedom. I think that's the title and of course all his other books and, um, he's a good egg. I'm sure there are things I'm supposed to announce, and I cannot remember for the life of me what they are because I'm going back to bed. That's the life I live. That's it. So I'll see you next time. (laughs) No,
1: you won't. This is a podcast.